0: I want to begin our time tonight by asking the question, what kind of people does God use to impact the world? We know that God is all-powerful. He's sovereign. He moves nations and kings to accomplish His own will. And history has followed its course because God has purposed it to be that way. But as an introduction to our time this evening, I want to think about the kind of people that God uses to carry out His ordained will. And I thought we would just survey a few From Scripture. Beginning with Abraham, we know that from Genesis 11 and Joshua 24-2 that he came from a family of pagan worshipers. His father had worshiped other gods, and yet the rest of the Bible following Genesis chapter 11 is predicated on God's sovereign choice to pull aside Abraham and make a covenant with him to bless him and his seed forever. Abraham would be the father of Israel, and as the father of Israel, this nation would go on to really impact the entire world for the sake of Yahweh, to show the people that they were a set-apart people worshiping the one true God. And the beginning of all this was Abraham, the pagan worshiper. Now, Abraham was also the father of all those who would place faith in God. In Genesis 15.6, it says he believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And in the New Testament, Paul uses Abraham as a prototypical example of placing faith in God for salvation. It's really incomprehensible if we think about the extent to which God used Abraham to impact the world. And so God used a pagan worshiper. Moving ahead a little bit now, though, what about Moses? Moses was a Jew by birth and raised in the Egyptian courts, and for someone who would be a great leader of Israel, leading hundreds of thousands of people wandering through the wilderness, delivering the law of God, constantly pointing the people back to the Lord, we might expect that God would use a smooth talker with great persuasive ability. Yet in Exodus 4.10, after giving Moses the mission of convincing all of Israel to follow him, Moses says, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, for I am slow of speech. And after a rebuke from the Lord, even still, Moses did not want to speak for God. He lacked a trust in God, we might say. Further, as his life would progress, we would see Moses kill a man, argue with God, strike the rock in anger at God. And yet, Moses was undoubtedly one of the greatest leaders in all of Scripture. So, God can use a murderer, one lacking trust in God, one who's slow in speech in order to impact the world. Well, let's consider one more. The nation of Israel was tired of their judges and they wanted a king. So they picked the tallest and most handsome uh, man to be their king, and that was King Saul. But God was after another sort of man. God wanted a man after his own heart, and, as, and the man that he would place on his throne would be none other than King David, the very king that he would bring, Messiah, from his lineage. Now David was called as a boy, a shepherd boy, the youngest runt of the family. And in fact, when he went against Goliath, people laughed because it was almost a joke at how small David was. Well, we know from reading in 1 Samuel that not only did David defeat Goliath, but God would make him king over all of Israel. He would use him to write significant portions of the Old Testament, and he established him as a strong foreshadowing figure of the Messiah. And by now, I think you know where we're headed with this. Was David perfect? No. Far from it. I'm sure I don't need to remind you of at least one uh, horrible scenario that's recorded for us. David and Bathsheba, right? David and Bathsheba. In this account, David sees a married woman while he's out on his porch. He lusts for her. He sends for her. He lies with her. He impregnates her. And then he covers it up in an attempt at least by killing her husband. If you're like me, I'm thinking, well, gosh, I haven't done that. I'm doing pretty good. And yet, friends, how much was David used of God? Both the narrative of David's life in 1 Samuel and the words of his pen in the Psalms have impacted millions, and I mean millions of lives, through the centuries. Psalm 51, Psalm 32, Psalm 22 are just a few of the Holy Spirit-inspired Psalms that God used David to write. And so, in conclusion, God used an adulterer. Now, what's the conclusion of this introduction? Three of the most well-known figures in the Old Testament, three who shook the world and continue to do so, were just ordinary guys, or perhaps even less than ordinary guys. They were average Joes who God used in an above-average way. And so what about us, Grace Bible Church? Can God use us? Can God use this church to make an impact in the world? Well, I'm convinced that we see an example and a model how this sort of impact can occur in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you'll turn there with me, I'm going to read the entire first chapter, and then we'll focus in on verses 5 to 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake." You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. "'For they themselves report about us "'what kind of a reception we had with you "'and how you turned to God from idols "'to serve a living and true God "'and to wait for His Son from heaven "'whom He raised from the dead, "'that is, Jesus, who rescues us "'from the wrath to come.'" The Apostle Paul had visited the church in Thessalonica and he had invested in their spiritual lives. He had proclaimed the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ among them, and he had helped them to grow into mature believers. In fact, Paul was so excited about the work that the Lord was doing among this group of believers that in chapter 3 in this letter, he just couldn't take waiting anymore. He says he had to send Timothy to find out how they were doing. He had heard from others about their faith and their conduct and that they were continuing in their faith, and that really fired him up. And so in, re- in response to Timothy's report, Paul writes this letter of encouragement and direction to his beloved Thessalonians. And so with our time this evening, I want to examine these five verses as a model for how we can make an impact in the world around us. In beginning with this, I want to look at the message that Paul delivered to them. In verse 5, he refers back to the time that he had spent with them when he was in Thessalonica. And in verse 5, if you draw your attention there, he begins with these words. He says, For our gospel. Now, pausing there for a moment, I want to ask the question what was Paul's gospel? What was the message that Paul delivered to the Thessalonians that had made such a great impact? Well, the term gospel is the Greek word euangelion, which is most often translated good news, but it can also mean news of victory. And in this day, a messenger would appear on behalf of the emperor. Now, just by this messenger's appearance, it was already known that this man brought good news. And upon getting the attention of all, he would raise his right hand in greeting and call out his message of victory with a loud voice. Now, this is the contextual background that the audience would have understood this term in. And it's interesting that in the same way, Paul's ministry over and over again regarded him standing and proclaiming the news of victory to an attentive audience. This message of victory was the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul defines what his gospel was in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1, he says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel... The euangelion, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And now he's going to define this gospel for us in First 1 Corinthians 15.3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So friends, what is the gospel? What is the news of victory that Paul had shared with both the Corinthians and the Thessalonians? Well, it's the message of victory that though Jesus died, he died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. He lives forevermore. His resurrection has sealed the salvation which he has accomplished on our behalf, both then, in the past, and now future for all of eternity. All those who would place faith in him he has sealed by raising from the dead. This was the gospel that Paul presented. And it wasn't a gospel that he made up either. It was a gospel that he had received directly from Jesus himself, according to Galatians 1.12. He was simply passing on what Christ had shared with him. So this was the gospel. This was Paul's message that he shared with the Thessalonians. But before moving past the message as a whole... I want to highlight that Paul's message was not limited to a mere proclamation of the resurrection of Christ. Involved in the gospel is the fact that when a person believes in Christ, Christ changes that person. He transforms them from a child of darkness into a child of light. And as such, their lives are different from then on. Not perfect, but different. And this undoubtedly was part of Paul's original message to the Thessalonians, and is now part of this letter as well. In fact, it is on the basis of the gospel that Paul would exhort them to walk worthy of the gospel two times in this letter, one of which is in chapter 4, verse 1. It's on the basis of the transforming nature of the gospel that Paul would call them to sexual purity in chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. He would call them to brotherly love, chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. He would call them to comfort one another and be comforted regarding the future in chapter four, thirteen through five eleven. And closing this letter, he would call them to general Christian conduct in chapter five, verses twelve to twenty-two. All of this, he would do so on the basis of the transforming power of the gospel. All of this is wrapped up in the message that Paul delivered to them regarding the good news of Jesus Christ. So this is the message that Paul bore. He bore good news. But now I want to think about and consider, how did Paul deliver this message? In other words, if it was expected that it would come with this sort of weight, this sort of transforming power in an individual's life, uh, it it wasn't just going to change a few ideologies or beliefs. So I want to know, when he was with them in person, how did he do it? Did he stand before them and just read a piece of paper? Did he use sign language? Did he act it out or show a film of some sort? Probably not. When you, think about, when you think about teaching others church stuff, how do you imagine presenting these truths? Or how do you present these truths? Do you say Jeroboam was the 14th king of the northern kingdom of Israel? Jethro was the father-in-law of Moses. Are you presenting dry facts or is there some passion behind it? I really hope that there's passion behind it. And in fact, I heard of a study, uh, a Bible study, women's study, that was going on at a church in northern Montana, and it kind of broke my heart to hear that the study consisted of these gals gathering together, reading an Old Testament passage, and uh, charting piece by piece the narrative of the flow, and then closing in prayer and leaving. There was no application, there was no implication for their lives, and really there was no power in it. And friends, if we, want to have a, if we want to present a gospel that's going to make an impact upon the hearer, we have to deliver this truth with enthusiasm. And in fact, I was so helped by one of the classes I'm taking now. The word enthusiasm comes from the word entheos, which means in God. In other words, all true enthusiasm comes from understanding God's word and applying it correctly. It comes from God himself. This ought to characterize our delivery when we talk about the Lord. And in light of this, I just want to ask, how do you suppose then that Paul and Timothy and Silvanus presented this gospel truth to the Thessalonians? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. Look again at verse 5. Paul says, "...for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction." He says, "...in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in full conviction." Right, Romans one sixteen tells us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel had rocked Paul's life in a 180 fashion to where now he was a completely different man. And now with the Spirit of God living in him, he was delivering an, impact, he was delivering an impactful message. See, here's the thing, when the word of God has affected the preacher of the truth, when the spirit of God has taken the truth and formed convictions and resolutions based on the truth, you better watch out because it's going to come out with power. It's going to come out with passion. And I don't mean to get too technical, but if you, actually the word here is dunamis or dunami, that's translated as power in our English Bibles. It can mean power, might, strength, force, capability. And Paul says that he delivered the message with dunamai, or with power. And in fact, just a little bit of uh, helpfulness in this word, centuries after this New Testament context, in 1867, Alfred Nobel, who the Nobel Peace Prize is named after, invented an explosive, ironically, that was stronger than black powder, Now, at first he called it Nobel's Blasting Powder, but later he was looking for a more potent name. He had, after all, just invented a substance that could alter one of man's biggest foes, the mountain, right? It could blow the side right off of it or a hole right through it for a train to pass through. So in order to capture the raw power of this substance, he decided to change the name to dynamite based on the Greek word here, which means power. Well, in the same way, I think about the fact that this word was in existence when Paul is searching for the right word to capture the power. And in searching for this right word, he arrives at the word dunamai and uses it in Romans 1.16 and here in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse five. And the point is this, friends, is that Paul's gospel came with power. It came with an influence and an impact. But verse 5 also tells us that it came in the Spirit. Now, we know that the Spirit's role is to magnify the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Son of God. And one of the ways he does that is by opening the eyes to the Scriptures. He opens eyes to the Scriptures to know and understand and eventually behold the Son of God for salvation. So Paul's message was grounded in the truth of Scripture, which ultimately leads to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, it was in the Spirit. It was in accordance with what was true And thirdly, we see that Paul's gospel was delivered in full conviction. Paul himself fully believed, in other words, that it was true. He was convinced even to the point of being killed later in his life. And you need to know that this wasn't just Paul mustering up some faith. It wasn't him just mustering up a conviction within his own heart. But it was the Spirit of God who had formed these convictions that so deeply rooted him. You see, when you read the Scriptures and when the Spirit moves to bring the truth of of the word of God to bear on a heart, it's not a man-driven thing. This is very much so a God-driven thing. In fact, I would submit that a conviction is something that we have been convinced of by the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts based upon the truth of God's word. Let me summarize it and put it this way. The Holy Spirit brings about conviction which leads to a powerful message. And friends, let's take heed to this. If we're talking about making an impact here, we need to, to apply this for a moment. If we want to make an impact in the world, not, just, not to change it per se, I'm not convinced we'll ever change the world, but if we want to impact the world, and if we want them to know about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then we cannot bring a gospel that is not rooted in Scripture. We cannot bring a gospel in our own power apart from the Spirit of God. We cannot bring the truth of the gospel if we ourselves do not have strong convictions that this is the most significant truth in all the universe. We too must deliver the message in power and in the Spirit and in full conviction. Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking of one who preaches the gospel, said that it ought to be like theology coming through a man who is on fire. And this is exactly what we see described here for us in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. Paul had preached the gospel to them as one who had theology on fire. It was true, but it was also full of emotion and passion. Now, in terms of the delivery, this was only half the impact. Paul's message was right on. It was spot on. But his life also spoke volumes in supporting the message that he bore. Look again at verse 5, the second half. He says, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So in other words, as Paul preached, here was not the scenario. It was not just a couple of hours of a sermon and then he was off to the next town, never to check in again, never to follow up, never to show love and care for these people. No, that's not the scenario at all. In fact, he spent time with these people. He labored with these people. Later we'll see he imparted his very life to these people Really, we could summarize it and say Paul loved these people. He wasn't just an itinerant preacher who just went about preaching, but he was with the people and cared for them. And in fact, just in, in surveying this small letter, five chapters in First Thessalonians, I see, I see four ways how Paul showed his love for the Thessalonians. Look at chapter 2. I'll start in verse 3. He says, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devout, devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved toward you believers. Just as you know, we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What love, right? What love. And if I could summarize a few points from this section, Paul here attributes his affections for the Thessalonians both as a mother would care for her children and as a father would care for his child. He employs both motherly and fatherly care for them. Paul genuinely loved these people and it made an impact. Secondly, another way he showed his love for them is that he wanted to be with them. In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, but we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short while in, in person, not in spirit, and we're all the more eager with a great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. So Paul wanted to be with them. This undoubtedly shows his love And would have made an impact. Thirdly, we see that they are his pride and joy. Look at verse 19 in chapter 2. He says, For who is our hope or joy or crown or exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. In other words, Paul had great joy over the Thessalonians in their faith. It did his heart well to see that they were doing well. and That they were following hard after the Lord. And fourthly, we see that he wanted to see them mature in faith. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says that night and day we kept praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, verse 11, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Paul wanted to see them mature in the faith. This is the sort of character that Paul possessed. This is the sort of person that Paul was as he ministered among them. As he proclaimed the truth of the gospel in power and in the spirit and in conviction, he did so with an earnest love that showed itself to the believers in Thessalonica. Now, in light of this, how do you think this message, this exhortation was received? Did it actually accomplish anything in their lives? Well now we see the reception. Return to chapter one in verse six. He says, You also became imitators of us. In other words, he says that they had become imitators of Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus's faith, their character, their godliness. And I just want to ask, was Paul really that persuasive? Was he just that good of an orator? Was he tall, dark, and handsome like Saul was, so that he could win them over by his looks? Was he incredibly funny? What was it that made these people want to follow Paul? And we've looked at his, his message, his delivery, his life, but I think the real power of influence is actually in the next few words. In chapters, or in chapter one verse six, he says, "You became imitators of us and of the Lord." You see, Paul himself, although an apostle, he wasn't really that special, and he knew that. But Paul had been changed by the grace of God into a man who was full of the Spirit of God. Therefore, Paul's goal and objective was actually to point people to Christ. It was to point people to imitating Christ, both by his message and by his life. That's why in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul rejoices. He says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul didn't want his message to be received as mere words of men. He wasn't just a persuasive speaker. He wasn't trying to convert people to his own system, but he was teaching the very word of God. And when the word of God goes forth from a person who's been changed by it, the result is that both the life and the message are simply a means to a greater end. Paul's life served to be imitated in order to cause them to imitate one greater than him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in like manner, his message was not his own, but it was the message of God himself. And friends, when the word and when the message of the gospel is received in this manner, it changes a person. It rocks a person's world when it's received as the word of God and not words of men. Now, how did this change happen? Did the Thessalonians just set their mind? Okay, I'm going to follow Paul. I'm going to try to be like Paul. I'm going to try to be like Jesus. Is that the first step in these guys' conversion? And I would submit to you, no. That's not what came first. What came first was genuine faith and repentance. You see, the Thessalonians had to become believers before they could be imitators. They they had to be born again, and they were born again. And we have described for us in verse 9 of chapter 1 what this looked like. He says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you, catch this, turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. In other words, they had turned to God from their false forms of worship, their false lifestyle, and they had turned to him in order to serve him. They had repented and believed. They had been regenerated from within. Well, likewise, friends, this is our calling in ministry as well. We are called to plead with people, to persuade them to turn from their false worship of idols and to point them to the one true God. Those outside the church, they're all worshiping something. They are, by definition, idol worshipers. Whether it's a career, an image, a a money uh, status or wealth, attention from the opposite sex, they're all worshiping something other than God. They're worshiping something that holds no value, no sustenance, no true fulfillment. And if we're honest, we've all been there at one point or another. And really, what is an idol? Well, by definition, it's a nothing. Deuteronomy 4.28 says that they're works of man's hands, they're wood and stone which neither see nor hear nor smell. 1 Corinthians eight or eight verse four says, Concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. And while some worship actual physical idols, an image, a statue, something of that sort, the scary thing is is that most people's idols are idols of the heart, as Ezekiel 14 talks about. And so the Lord, working through Paul and company, had turned the Thessalonians from worshiping idols to serve the living and true God. So returning now to verse 6, Paul said that they had become imitators of him and the Lord, and the first step was that they repented and believed. But following this, the implication of this phrase in verse 6 is that they had went on from the time of belief to actually live like Paul lived and to live like Christ lived. And this imitation was part of Paul's goal all along in his ministry. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, to the church here, Paul says, "...be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ." In Hebrews 13, he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, I think it's interesting that in these passages, just like Paul's uh, theology was, in these passages as well, the human leader is not the end of it all. The human leader was simply a means to an end. He was never meant to be worshipped. Paul was never meant to be worshipped. No apostle was meant to be worshipped. No angel was meant to be worshipped. They were all a means to an end. So it is with our spiritual leaders. They're not meant to be worshipped. They're meant to be a reflecting mirror that points us to God. So Paul had rejoiced that the Thessalonians not only had become imitators of him, that wasn't that significant, but they had become imitators of Christ himself. Now, there's another aspect of their reception that's worth our attention. Look at verse 6 again. He says, Having received the word in much tribulation. Again, in chapter 2, verse 14, Paul speaks of this again. He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. This is so far from the prosperity gospel. It's so far from your best life now. It's so far from come to Jesus and have all your problems solved. The Thessalonians had received the word in the midst of much tribulation. Their embracing of Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior was counter-pop culture. It was against the grain of society, and as such, there was persecution. How much persecution? Well, they killed the one that they were following, and many of his followers. Now those who opposed the gospel in the name of religion had killed Jesus and driven Christians out by way of persecutions. In fact, Christians were targeted at this time in an attempt to be eliminated. They've been targeted through church history and murdered. The apostles themselves would experience this sort of persecution and death. Paul would experience this sort of persecution and death. Again, early church fathers would. But you know what's incredible? Is that the Thessalonians knew this ahead of time. Right, it wasn't like one of those direct TV deals that comes across your door that tries to sell you direct TV for $10 and then hits you with a bill of 120 the next month. It wasn't like that. Paul didn't paint a pretty picture and then bring the bad news after they had signed up. And in fact, in chapter 3 verse 4, speaking of his own persecution, he said, "For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer at the hand of affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know." So Paul forewarned them that their persecution would come, that his own persecution would come. And it did come to both them and him. And yet, how would the Thessalonians endure it? What quality of faith, another way to ask this question, what quality of faith had Paul passed on to these Thessalonians that would be tested by persecution? Well, look at the next part of chapter 1, verse 6. He says, "...you received it in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit." And in light of that context, that's just unbelievable, isn't it? They received it with joy. Knowing that if they truly followed the Lord, they would receive persecution, the Thessalonians received the word with joy. Chapter 3, verse 5 says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would have been in vain. And yet if you were to read verses 6 through 9, Paul concludes that the Thessalonians had stood strong. They stood in the midst of persecution. They had endured the fortress of their faith had not shaken, been shaken to the point of crumbling, and though they had received the truth about Jesus in tribulation, their reception of this truth was filled with joy. Now, the reason that this sort of faith, this quality of faith, existed within them, was due to the sovereign grace of God, and that's why in chapter one, verse four, Paul attributes their rock-solid faith to the choosing of God. Knowing that they were chosen by God, saved by God, set apart for service unto God, they received the word with joy, and persecution didn't matter. It didn't matter if they would suffer. They belonged to God, the one true God. They were chosen as his beloved. And so the Thessalonians had genuinely received the gospel into the core of their being. That was their reception. Now, in our last consideration of this passage, I want to consider the impact that their faith had had. What was the fruit of Paul's labor with the Thessalonian church? What was the resulting impact of their faith and conduct as well? And first, we see that the Thessalonians were an example to other believers. Verse 7, he says that they had received the the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Spirit. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Once Paul and Timothy and Silvanus had left, it would have been easy, if you think about it, for the Thessalonians just to back off, just to revert to their old ways. They didn't have any supervision now, right? They could have done whatever they wanted. And would they revert to their old ways? No, they couldn't. They had been changed, right? They had been transformed by the grace of God, by his working. So it's no wonder that they stood true. True. In fact, the Thessalonians had provided an example that would become notorious in the surrounding areas. Their integrity in the Christian life became famous. This verse tells us it had spread to Macedonia and Achaia. Now, just a bit of background here. Macedonia was the greater region in which the city of Thessalonica existed. It would have been a northern modern-day Greece area. The region of Macedonia included both Philippi and Berea, also cities, which is interesting considering that the Philippians were also beloved by Paul, as were the Thessalonians, and the Bereans are known from being the noble Bereans. So I just kind of think as a side note, it's neat to see the Lord working in Macedonia in a pretty unique way, actually. Now, similarly, Achaia was the large region just to the south of Macedonia, modern-day southern Greece, and the city of Corinth was the capital of Achaia. So Thessalonica Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia in the north. It has 200,000 people and it was located on the main east and west highway and served as a hub for both political and commercial activity in all of Macedonia, the entire region. It became known in fact as the mother of all Macedonia. Now I want to think about this for a moment all of these two provinces of Rome had heard of the example of the Thessalonians. Together, Macedonia and Achaia formed the geographical size of the state of Alabama and would have contained millions of people. And yet this one small church's faith had become famous in this entire region. Millions and millions of people. And it It's so incredible to just look and see how Paul had invested in them for a while, and yet now as a church, their testimony, their witness, was being true salt and light to the world around them. So the Thessalonians were an example of Christian living to all of Macedonia and all of Achaia. Secondly, though, look at verse 8. A second impact that Paul's ministry to them had had is that they now spoke the word of God to others. He says in verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. In other words, the Thessalonians didn't by the strategy always preach the gospel, use words when necessary. They were walking the walk as true Christians, but they were also talking the talk. Their lives were the pillar and support of the truth that they bore with their mouths. And just like Paul had delivered the message of the gospel to them and he had lived it out before them, so now they too were duplicating the same thing. They were talking about the scriptures. They were talking about Jesus, thereby forming the epicenter which shook the world around them. Travelers, businessmen, nomads, gypsies, the Thessalonians were faithful with whoever came through this main east-west highway. Whoever they came across, they were proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, as a third impact of their faith, look again at verse 8. It says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. In other words, guys, their radical lives, their radical message had been heard by all. Again, a combination of their lifestyle and their message, the result of this sort of faith made an impact on everyone. Paul says in every place. In other words, there was nowhere he could think of that hadn't heard of the Thessalonians. Again, as a trading hub, many foreigners would come into this city and then go back to home, setting up the perfect context for this church's faith to sound forth to the entire world. Not only had their faith impacted the regions of Macedonia and Achaia, but it was the talk of the world. They made a mark, and impact on the entire world. And as a result, Paul says in verse 8, that now they had no need to say anything. Their lives and their words spoke loud enough on their own. A fourth impact, though, that Paul's ministry had had on the Thessalonians is in verse 9, they now served the Lord, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Again, emphasis on the fact that they served the living and true God. The Thessalonians weren't marginal Christians, they weren't cul de sac Christians, they weren't spectator Christians, they weren't hypocritical Christians. They were active servants of the living God. The impact of Paul's ministering to them was that now they sought to minister to others. They were living out their Christian faith in the same way that God had designed all along. With new hearts, they now lived to serve God and to serve Jesus Christ. And fifthly, there's an impact that they now loved and eagerly waited for Jesus Christ their Savior. Look at verse 10. End of verse 9, it says, they now serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus Christ who rescues us from the wrath to come. The result was that they now eagerly waited for Jesus' return. They had an eager longing to see Him face to face, to be free from sin, to be with Him in heaven. Their perspective was not earthly bound. This eagerness, friends, ought to be true of us as well. This ought to be true of anyone who's been changed by the grace of God. Folks, I just want to remind us, there's an empty grave out there. There may be more than one empty grave out there, but there's only one empty grave where the man rose himself from the dead, and it's still empty, and he's coming back, and that empty grave belongs to Jesus, and he's coming back to collect his saints and go back to heaven. Are you excited for that day? Now, in closing, I just want you to imagine for a moment if the whole world was talking about the radical faith of a certain church. Instead, we all know the latest drama on the presidential election. Trump said this, Hillary did that. But what if the Thessalonians, what if we, just like the Thessalonians, had lived out the gospel in such a way that it testified to all the world that we at least encountered? The Thessalonians' faith had gone on to reach the world of their day. And in the same way, I want to just consider our church for a moment. Our church is doing well. It is. In fact, the Lord has used this church to cultivate other pastors who have gone on to other churches. He's used this church to bring forth men who teach at seminaries and other Bible institutions. This church has sent out missionaries who serve in the foreign context this church has brought up its own pastors in some senses, five out of seven of which came from MSU, came up through Grace Bible Church, and were called into vocational ministry. From this church, examples could be multiplied of how one faithful follower of Christ began a conversation with someone on a plane, or at a restaurant, or a friend, or a stranger, and that person came to faith in the Lord, and now they're doing the same thing. It's not to mention the many CEOs, businessmen, doctors, lawyers, teachers, engineers, wives, and stay-at-home moms who have made a tremendous impact on the world for the sake of Christ. And the common link of this is that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God took a Jesus hater in the Apostle Paul and made him a mighty force for his kingdom. In the same way, he used Abraham, he used Moses, he used David, And friends, if you're in Christ, I want to just encourage you, God can use you too. He can use the individual people that make up Grace Bible Church. Now maybe you're intimidated and you're thinking, well, how? How can I do this? Well, how did Paul do it? He proclaimed the gospel, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in conviction. He lived in such a way so as to prove himself among them for their sake. He lived so as to be worthy of imitation, He called them to turn from idols and to serve the living and true God. He called people to look to Jesus and to wait eagerly for him. He proved himself to be gentle among them like a nursing mother. He encouraged and implored them just as a father would his own children. He imparted to them not only the gospel but his very life. He considered these people as very dear to him and he labored day and night in proclaiming this truth to them because he loved them. Now, I just want to encourage us as we're leaving this place to consider aspects of this testimony. Consider Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians and examine ourselves and to ask, how am I doing in these areas? Am I manifesting this sort of Christian love to those who I'm investing in? Friends, I want to make a difference in the world. And I know many of you do too. And that's my prayer for us as a church, that Grace Bible Church would be a sending place, that the word of the Lord would sound forth from this place That the whole world would hear about the faith, the radical kind of Christianity that's going on right here. Amen. Let's bow together and pray. Father, this is our desire. Lord, thank you for this example. Thank you for Paul's impact on the Thessalonian church. Thank you, Lord, that through the ages, Lord, through the centuries, you have produced uh, the quality of Christianity and your followers, Lord, that will endure even to the point of death. And Lord, I just pray for those here tonight, myself included, God, that you would bolster our faith, that you would encourage us, God, that you would give us full conviction of this truth, Lord, and that we would go forth in the power of the Spirit. Lord, use this church in a mighty way. Use the individual members of this church to impact their co-workers their neighbors, Lord, their friends, their family members, even strangers, God. Lord, our goal is not to change the world, but it is to be a witness to the world of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, solidify this truth in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.